Welcome once again to our CSA online retreat, and we're continuing with our uh, reading and discussion of the Bhagavad Gita. And I'll also remind you that uh, uh, if you have a question as we're going through this uh, discussion, feel free to just ask the question when it comes up, and we'll address these as they as we go. And we are beginning now, chapter six. Chapter 6 is the yoga of meditation. Yoga of meditation. So we've had the yoga of wisdom and renunciation and action. And now we're going to look at uh, moving beyond into uh, this more. uh, Once we're we're prepared, once we've got the the, uh, action and uh, renunciation and I have understood and are engaging with these things, then we've set the stage for the ability to meditate and come to this higher awareness to wake up. So we begin with Krishna read, uh, Krishna saying, he who performs his duty with no concern for results is the true man of yoga, not he who refrains from action. So this is kind of a reminder of what we've been talking about in the previous chapter. So, and a true man of yoga is one who is engaged in the processes, the procedures of spiritual awakening. We are on our spiritual awakening path. This is important to us. And we see this in, we incorporate this uh, awareness of everything that we do. So he goes on and says that, it says, know that right action itself is renunciation. Right action itself is renunciation. In the yoga of action, you first renounce your own selfish will. So in our spiritual quest, the first thing we do is to let go of selfishness, selfish will, that is this intention to uh, push the world around, to manipulate, to, to uh, have to have our way, to be in charge. This is all related directly to our ego. So this sense of selfish will, ego, which is driven by the sense of separation, this is the first thing that we let go of. We renounce that. And for the man who wishes to mature, the yoga of action is the path. For the man already mature, serenity is the path. For the man who wishes to mature, the yoga of action. So if we are still uh, being pushed around a little bit by urges and compulsions, if we still have addictions, if we still have uh, propensities to emotional immaturity, that is that we are uh, fearful and anxious and worried a lot, or that we are overly emotional and exuberant. And so if, if we're still engaged and feeling ourselves to be kind of the effect of what's happening around us, then Krishna says, get involved with action, start to be focused, start to be intentional, start to pay attention. But if we're already mature, that is, if we've already kind of balanced out these externals and we're operating, it's more smoothly, a little more discerning, a little more discriminating, and not quite so easily affected by what's happening around us, then the path is serenity, is to rest in stillness, is to be quiet. And Mr. Davis says, first, we should master 
samadhi. This is this is the path of serenity, and this is this is related, and the path is related to um, the stages, the levels of samadhi. And so we talk about in the Yoga Sutras that there are um, some some levels and in the beginning as we begin to notice the mind coming clear the field of awareness no longer has these so many fluctuations so many thoughts and ideas and memories and etc um, then we begin to have this sense of being of awareness of being the witness and we can be partially aware partially aware of our of our nature as a witness consciousness and still have some of these things bubbling in the path in the background and still have some ideas or concepts that we're identified with so in the beginning we can have our samadhi which is bringing together attention and awareness with our essence of being we can have this experience but it is also related to um connected with slightly with some concept some idea we have a concept of ourself as being infinite for example and this is an idea a concept and while we can aspire to experience that infinite still a concept so we're still there's still a, a little bit of this subject object relationship going on um, and so this is called subikalpa vikalpa is the fluctuation is the imagination, the imagining, the conceptualization, whatever is in our mind. And we have this concept that we are identified with. Su is with. So we are with a concept. Su bikalpa. We are one-pointed, but we are one-pointed with some idea about what our nature is. So this is a, a lower level of samadhi, but it is a step in the right direction. And eventually, if we stay with this, if we just hang in there, then eventually we let go of even the concept and we rest in pure awareness. And this is near vikalpa, vikalpa concept, near without. So with no concept, no concept of infinity, no concept, no concept of birthless and deathless and any idea that we have about ourselves or about God, Nothing, no concept, no idea. We just rest in pure existence being. And here we are firmly grounded in this awareness of our true nature. So this is the this is our path. Is first becoming focused and one-pointed, then becoming more uh, more focused at a place where we identify with whatever we're focused on. We identify with the breath or the mantra, listening to Om. And then we allow ourselves to move into this sort of transcendent experience where we are resting in conscious awareness, but still with some slight idea or some slight uh, uh, concept that we're identified with. And then finally, we let that go. That dissolves away and we rest in awareness. And this is not, it, it, there's not a... Um, a defining line there's no definition between this level and this level and this level it is a process it is a gradual unfolding a gradual awakening and so i remember early on i used to think okay well did i get to that level you know and there's not like a magic place where the switch goes on and ah this is samadhi you know there is 
there is awareness. There's a place where we, where we are aware that we are aware. And it's like, wow, that's, this is it. And of course, as soon as we are aware that we are aware and we go, wow, this is it. We're thinking again. And so we have to, you know, start over and kind of sneak up on it and allow ourselves to have the experience without thinking about having the experience. So, so this is part of our process, our process. Ron? Yeah. I do have a question. Can I go just backwards for just a second? I, I don't, I would like you to explain how you reconcile uh, the Gita's saying to renounce the results of your actions and to give up self-will and the, what has become the sort of new thought tool of creative imagination and forging your environment in the in your mind those two things to me don't i can't reconcile how do you do that how do i do that well <laughs> and it's, and this is a really good question because on one hand i mean the first book that i read of mr davis's was how to use your creative imagination how how do you work with the world you know how do you create what it is that you need and acquire attract what you need how does this work and 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 this was transformative for me and so i i became quite adept at creative imagination but then as we go forward there's a realization along the way that this technique of creative imagination is is really revealing the way things work. This is the way the world works. This is the way we work, the way we have always acquired, changed, uh, you know, made any adjustments in our personal reality. What we, what we attract to ourselves begins with imagination. We imagine, oh, I've got, I need a new car. So we imagine having a car and then we have the feeling, wow, it'll be great to have a car that doesn't smoke when I go down the road and how great I'm going to feel. I won't be embarrassed. So we have all these things that go along with it. And then eventually we end up with the car. Uh, everything in our life has started off with imagination and feeling and has been attracted to us. And so this is this creative imagination and new thought has really got onto this. Uh, as you say, uh, and made it a thing. And so now we are using our will and using our intentionality to work with this process, which is automatic, it's natural, it's a law, it's like gravity, doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it works. And that also means that if you are imagining terrible things, if you're imagining the worst case scenario, and you have a feeling, you know, this is really going to happen, then you can also allow the universe to manifest things that are not particularly useful or certainly not pleasant. So, so this is an under, you know, we come into an understanding that this is the way things work and, and you can work with it in harmony with it, or you can just be, let it sort of randomly happen and you'll end up, you know, suffering with the consequences of not being intentional. So on one hand, you know, we say, yes, it's very useful to understand how these things work and to be able to work with them. Then on the other hand, 
the question is, well, what is self-will and where, you know, how am I supposed to let go of my self-will in order to be in harmony with this? And here, for me, the resolution was to, number one, recognize that uh, this process worked perfectly. And number two, to recognize that I don't always know what's best for myself. And I don't always, you know, I don't always, I don't have uh, the crystal ball that says this is what you're supposed to be doing in the long term. I don't know. And so for me, I chose to use this process um, generically. That is, I would not be specific about what the outcome was, except, I mean, I was specific in what the outcome was. And that is that the outcome is perfect. I'm in my right place. I see myself in my right place. I feel myself to be in my right place. I don't know what that place is, but I know that I am there. And I know that all the forces in the universe are moving in harmony to take me there and to keep me there and to take care of me while I'm there. And so we use creative imagination. The higher way of using creative imagination is to use it to cooperate with the universe and this, and this is a way of developing faith and trust, you see. So we use our creative imagination in order to become, uh, in, in order to, to develop our relationship with the world, with the universe. And so we say, okay, I'm, my, my wish for myself is to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing, is to be living on purpose is to be accomplishing the purposes that I'm here for, to, living, to be living in the highest and the best way. And so I don't, I don't know specifically, and my life has been, actually it's been very interesting, and uh, you know things have changed as I've gone along, but I allow them to change because I always stay anchored in this, in this uh, creative imagination, in this consciousness, that the universe is nurturing and supporting and taking me to where I need to be for now. Not forever, for now. Because, you know, everything continues to change. The world is constantly evolving. And as we've all had this amazing opportunity to, to witness, I mean, this is a real, really amazing lesson for us, that the whole world can change in a month, you know, and our whole reality is completely different you know if anybody had had written the science fiction book last year about this exact scenario people would go wow that's really intense you know and here we are in the middle of it so so i'm not sure if this answers your question but we can be we can let go of uh, of our of this egotistical need to be in control to be in power to be using creative imagination to push the world around. Instead, we can use this to feel ourselves to be in harmony, to feel the universe being supportive and nurturing, and to allow that to unfold for us. If we go back to the Yoga Sutras, you know, one of the, 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 uh, the basic yamas and the niyamas say that we should be peaceful and content, content. Not attached, no attachment, no aversion, content all the time. And so, so we can come from this uh, position of being content and allowing the universe to move through us. See? So, but for those who are feeling very limited, feeling separate, 
feeling like they don't have what they need, that they have to somehow be controlling and manipulating, then they get involved with this creative imagination and almost like, you know, creating little spells out there. <clears throat> so, so I, I have no problem. I, I mean, for me, I have no problem resolving this. Um, what we're told on the spiritual, you know, in our spiritual path, the ideal is to live in harmony to allow yourself to kind of be open to the intuition that leads you and guides you and not be so identified with the sense of separation and the ego that you're pushed around by everything that happens. So is that helpful? So we rena first, first we renounce our own selfish will, right? And then the man who wishes to mature, the yoga of action is the path. We, we engage. If we know we need to do something, then we do it. We know what we need to do. We, we engage. We move through the process. We learn what we need to learn, practice, become more mindful. And then finally, when we mature and we feel like we're kind of stable and stabilized and, <clears throat> and grounded, then we move to that next level, which is serenity. And Krishna goes on. When a man has become unattached to sense objects or to actions, renouncing his own selfish will, he is then mature in yoga. And Roy says, all problems are solved by dissolving the false sense of selfhood, that is the ego. All problems. That's a pretty heavy statement. All problems are solved by letting go of this false, this illusion sense that we are an individual, independent, outside unit that somehow has to do something to plug in, to be complete, to earn enough experience points to get to the next level. You know, um, this is the, where the problem is. All problems reside in this sense of this false sense of separation. And so Krishna goes on and says he should lift up the self, the little self, by the self, the big self with a capital S. Lift up the self, that is this, this sense of what we are, I am, you know, and we lift this up, we lift ourself up. Arjuna is lifted up by higher consciousness. So we lift up the self by the self and do not sink into the selfish, this, this sense of limitation, need, grasping. For the self, the little self, is the only friend of the self, the big self, and also its only foe. So, so I'll, just re I'll read this one, one time through. He should lift up the self by the self and not sink into the selfish, for the self is the only friend of the self and is its only foe. So this sense of beingness, this sense of I am, the sense of what I am, can be lifted up by higher consciousness. We can intend to be awake. We can intend to make whatever changes we need in our attitudes, behaviors, beliefs. We can make whatever changes we need in order to wake up more quickly, more completely. Or this slower self can be in conflict and we can constantly be finding that, this, that there are problems as a result of this 
uh, this egotistic sense of independent reality. You see this ego, and that, and so here are here's the source of the problems, and this, and we have a choice here. Krishna is saying you can either be, you know, have a lot of challenges with this self, the small self, or you can wake up. And he goes on, the self is a friend for him who masters himself by the self with a capital S. But for him who is not self-mastered, the self is the cruelest foe. So this ego, this idea, this feeling that we're separate creates all these problems and all this anxiety and the fear and the worry and the grief and the doubt and all the suffering that we have is this cruelest foe it comes as a result of this identification. I think I am separate. I, it's not even thinking. I feel I am separate. This is the problem. I feel I am separate. And what we're aspiring to do here is to move the feeling, this, this awareness, move the feeling to where we feel connected, where we feel that we are an expression of this one reality, and as Krishna said earlier, I do everything. I am the action. I am the thing that the, I am the thought of doing. I am the action and I am what is done. And so as, so where, where are we in this? We are participants. You know, I, yesterday, so it's like being on a ride at Disneyland. We are, we are engaged in this process, but it is a process that is happening and and, and we can be part of it without being uh, put off or controlled or feeling separate from it, which is where the where the problems come from. Ron, when I'm at, yeah. Okay, sorry. Why? Question just came in my mind. Why do we feel that separation? Because of our mind. Because our mind tendency is to separate everything. Why do we feel separate? We feel separate because, because, uh, and again, we talked about this, I think, yesterday too. When when the when consciousness becomes identified with this uh, expressive reality, it's interesting, and it, and we become engaged, and we become involved, and we we uh, pay so much attention to what's coming in through the senses, and there is this automatic feeling of separation that comes when we're limited to just the information that comes in from the senses, our experience coming in from the senses. And we look around and we see ourselves in context of everything around us. So as we're maturing, that is as, as we become identified with this body, this mind body, and as this mind body grows and, and the processor begins to develop so that it can relate to what's happening, there is this sense that it is a separate thing. And then we spend years, I mean, we spend 20 years of our life uh, identified with this and trying to make sense out of what's going on and trying to, to reinforce and have some control over the world and power I remember my uh, my stepson when he was five years old. You know, one day I, I said, you know, you need to go clean your room, Sean. And he said, I don't have to do what you say. <laughs> you know, there's 
there's just even as a little child, there's this sense of independence and this sense of power and this sense of wanting to be in control of your life, you know? I remember the first thing I can remember, or one of the first things I remember, I was just learning how to walk. I mean, so I, there wasn't, I didn't have any language. I couldn't talk. I didn't know, you know, words, but I can very clearly remember uh, wobbling and trying to walk and falling down. But the thing that I remember the most clearly was propping myself up against the wall, standing up against the wall at the door and reaching up and trying to open the door. I wanted to open the door and go outside. See, and even even before I could think, I mean, we can't have concepts. We can't tell ourselves a story until we have language, but we're aware. And there's this impulse to be in control. See, there's this impulse to express. And so we get so identified with that that it becomes the thing. And so once we wake up and once, I mean, once we grow up and once we mature and we sort of are, you know, able to stand up on our own two feet and walk across the room and we're able to, you know, feed ourselves and take care. This has just become such a habit. We're so engrossed and so enchanted by this whole drama that we have completely missed the point. We completely uh, are unaware of this awareness that we're all that is always us it's all i mean we we are, we are always aware we always have been from that earliest age I, like i say i can remember i am aware of what was happening i'm aware that when i was in the when i was six or seven years old you know i told you the story about looking into the mirror looking into my eyes and, and wondering who is who am i what is in there you know how does this work um and that same awareness was there when I was in high school and when I was, you know, traveling here and there. Always we're, we're aware all the time. But, but, it's, but this awareness is so subtle that it sort of stays in the background and, and we miss it. And so the whole process of, we're, of our spiritual awakening path is learning how to pay more attention to that awareness that is us all the time less be less engaged less enchanted by all of the you know memories and events and circumstances and responsibilities and and emotions and urges and all these things i mean they're all fine this is life i wouldn't have it any other way but i would have it in a way that i'm at least mindful of what's happening i like to know that i'm on the ride you know so um i I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, the other answer is that because just because that's the way it is. <laughs> so when a man has mastered himself, he's perfectly at ease in cold, in heat, in pleasure, in pain, in honor, in disgrace. So we understand, I mean, this is, you see the correlate between if we're involved with an ego, if we are an ego, if we are separate, if we are this individual that has to be in power, be in control, uh, be moving things around, then when people like us, we feel good. When people don't like us, we feel terrible. Um, Pleasure and pain, heat and cold, all these we can be perfectly at ease. We can be perfectly at ease knowing 
well, we're just on this ride and, you know, things are changing and they're going to continue to change and it's okay. It's okay. When they're unpleasant, then we take the action we need to, do, to take to hopefully make them more pleasant. And when they're very pleasant, we take the action we need to do, which is to be grateful, thankful, and go, wow, you know, a good day, beautiful. And when it's too hot, uh, my room right here is faces to the east, and so the sun heats it up. And by this time in the morning, the air conditioner is not keeping up with the heat outside, so my room gets to be a little bit warm. And so that's interesting. And you know, when it's too hot and too cold, we just say, "Well, that's interesting." Unless it, you know, unless it's creating. Uh, a physical challenge to where we can't function, we can't survive, then we can we can stay calm in the midst of these things, to be centered, to be grounded, to be serene. So tranquil. Roy says to be tranquil, to be stable in self-knowledge at all times and not identified with the ego, that is the sense of separation. So when a man has mastered himself, he is perfectly at ease in cold and heat and pleasure or pain in honor or disgrace or disgrace. The mature man, fulfilled in wisdom, resolute, looks with equal detachment at a lump of dirt, a rock, or a piece of gold. Equal detachment. You know, we, we see all these things and and they are Really, all in their own people. A lump of dirt. Actually, you know, I've I've learned over over many years. Discipline as a photographer early in my life helped thing. If I just look closely enough at it, it's amazing, fascinating. A lump of dirt. You know, you really look at a lump of dirt. Well, you think, well, it's just dirt. But what is dirt? And when you look at really close, well, there's little minerals and sometimes creatures and, you know, stuff. And it's made of things. And, and then if you ever get one of these, uh, get a microscope or get one of these books that says, what's in dirt? And it turns out that it, it, once we get past the level where we can see at a microscopic level, there are, you know, there's the whole ecosystem in every little lump of dirt. You know, there's something we look at, we can see the uh, amazing beauty of life and the, the amazing beauty of this expression. And we can contemplate, too. You know, we think, well, how, what is dirt? Well, dirt comes from organic matter and minerals. And how does that work? It, you know, it requires this this specific environment that we have. And all these pieces came from exploding stars at some point. And, um, you know, so we can... We can look at all this and see it's all part of this expression and see it's all really the same in that we're not, uh, you know, drawn to one thing a lot more than another. Uh, the man of wisdom looks impartially on all, those who love him or those who hate him, his kinsmen, his enemies, his friends, the good and also the wicked. Look equally. And in order to look equally, we have to be looking past the superficial level and we have to be looking at that pure essence, that divine spirit that, that animates everyone, that is everyone. And so no matter how 
crazy and weird people are out there in the world, we acknowledge and honor the fact that they are an expression of the divine. Remember Paramahansa Yogananda saying, in this world, everybody's a little bit crazy. Everybody. But we tend to hang around with people, you know, that have the same flavor of craziness as we have. But when they have a different flavor of craziness, you know, we'd say, oh, look at that person's crazy. But the people that we're with are crazy. We don't notice the craziness. You know, we say, this is normal. It's them that are crazy. So we can come into this awareness that, you know, everybody's, you know, doing the best they can. Everybody's okay. And there's that story that I remember from uh, from Ram Das. He t- told a story about the the king whose uh, advisor came to him and said, Master, we have this terrible problem. Uh, all the wheat in the fields have all been uh, uh, infected with this blight. And so, and, and anybody who eats this wheat uh, will go crazy. It will be temporarily insane. And it's actually, you know, a thing. There's this ergo is a fungus that, that can infect uh, wheat and it has a property that's psychoactive like LSD. So, you know, it kind of was a real thing. Uh, anyway, so the grand vizier tells the, tells the king that this is a big problem. What's going to happen? You know, people are going to be all be crazy. But he said, the good news is that there's just enough left over in the granary from last year so that the royal family and myself, we won't have to eat the tainted grain. And the king said, well, if everybody else in the kingdom's going to be eating the grain and, be, and, and being crazy, then we will too. We're all in this together. But before we, before we start, everybody will put a little mark on their forehead so we remember that we're crazy. So, and Ram Das said, and now everywhere I go in the universe, I see people with a little mark on their forehead. So, you know, we can be, we can take everyone the same, whether they like us or they don't like us, if they, you know, unfriend us on Facebook, whatever's happening, it's okay. It's okay. It's not, you know, maybe it is personal, but that's all right too. (laughs) So... So we can we can be you know have be stable, grounded, have equanimity. Uh, the man of yoga should practice concentration alone, alone by themselves, mastering mind and body, free of possessions and desires. Sitting down, having chosen a spot that's neither too high or too low. It is clean and covered with a grass mat, a deerskin, and a cloth. He should concentrate with his whole mind on a single object. If he practices in this way, his mind will soon become pure. So here Krishna describes meditation. So we are alone, free of possessions, mastering the mind and body so the mind is no longer restless, the body is no longer restless, we're stable, we have a nice posture, uh, a spot that's not too high or too low, we're in a nice balanced place. And in the Bhagavad Gita, they say he, they actually say, 
covering the ground with a grass mat and then a deer skin and then a cloth. And this goes back to a, to a subtle energetic, uh, energe energetic understanding that these would be uh, an insulator from the, the subtle influences of the earth. So, so we can ins insulate ourselves somewhat from the influences of the, the earth planet energies with this, with a grass mat and a deer skin and uh, a cloth, preferably wool, uh, wool cloth. And I remember when I read this the first time, I, I, I called Roy up and I asked him about this. I said, do I need to go like find a deer skin and <laughs> make my little, you know, special asana seat? And he laughed and he said, he said that in the beginning, um, this energy, this, uh, this insulation is so subtle that you would never notice it. You won't tell the difference. And at the point where you become sensitive enough to really be able to tell the difference, you don't need it. So, so, so he just laughed and sort of tossed that off. And then concentrate with our whole mind on a single object. If he practices in this way, the mind will soon become pure. So this is meditation, a single object. He doesn't say what object, he just says a single object. With torso and head held straight, with posture steady and unmoving, gazing at the tip of his nose, not letting his eyes look elsewhere. And the tip of his nose, off, you know, in the beginning we think, well, this is the tip of my nose. But the other tip of our nose is right here between the eyebrows. So if we focus our attention here, then this brings our awareness and our attention to the frontal lobes of the brain, center of focused attention, and also the ability to inhibit thoughts and urges and things in the background. So bring the attention here. He should sit there calm, fearless, firm in his vow to be chaste, his whole mind controlled, directed, focused, absorbed in me, higher consciousness. Whole mind controlled, directed, focused, and absorbed in higher consciousness. And in, uh, in Roy's commentary, he he says that we should avoid being passive. We don't sit and meditate and just kind of hang out there and drift along. And it can be very relaxing, you know, it can be very, there's a, there are some very positive physiological benefits that come for this. But he says, this is not, this is not meditation. We should be actively engaged. So we don't want to be passive. We don't want to be preoccupied with thoughts. So if we're sitting here, at least we're, you know, at least we're taking the time to sit down and be quiet and close our eyes. But if thoughts continue to bubble and we just go over one thing after another, after another, you know, this is not, uh, not useful for meditation. We don't want to be pre uh, preoccupied with feelings and we don't want to be preoccupied with moods. So, so basically we're actively intentionally moving in a process of inner exploration. We want to have this experience. We want to be restored. We want to be awake. And so everything else that comes up is secondary and is a distraction. So we let those things go. 
because we're really focused, we're really intent on this awakening process. So, and then he goes on, constantly mastering his mind, the man of yoga grows peaceful, attains supreme liberation, and vanishes into my bliss. Constantly mastering his mind, the man of yoga grows peaceful, attains supreme liberation, and vanishes into my bliss. And that bliss, as we talked about yesterday, is the bliss of self-knowing, self-awareness, self-realization. This is not emotional. Uh, this is not an imaginary. Um, this, is a, this is a very grounded um, I think Yogananda would say, ever new joy. This is, this is something that comes from within us, but it is not giddy and not emotional and, uh, and not a, uh, a reactive thing, but rather it is this amazing knowledge of self. I am, I am aware that I am, and all that is around is all me, and there is this amazing um, bliss, joy that comes out of this. And liberation is the result of this focused attention and realization that we are not separate, we are not limited, and so we are literally free. We no longer are controlled by, impelled by circumstances, events, conditions, individuals, substances, anything. We are completely self-contained uh, and we are self-realized, liberated. Constantly mastering his mind, the man of yoga grows peaceful, attains supreme liberation, and vanishes into my bliss. And so, and this, and, and this is available, this is possible for us while we are still incarnated, while we're still alive. We can live in this blissful consciousness, this awareness of being, even while we are engaging and doing what we do. And he continues, uh, let's do one, uh, do just a couple more here. Um, then he goes on and says, he who eats too much food or too little, who, all, who is always drowsy or restless, will never succeed in the yoga of meditation. He who eats too much, too little, who's drowsy or restless and hyper, will never succeed in the yoga of meditation. For the man who is moderate in food and pleasure, moderate in action, moderate in sleep and in waking, yoga destroys all sorrow. So, and Roy says, living in harmony with the rhythms of life nurtures wellness and supports well-being and supports our realization. Living in harmony, not too much, not too little. It's the Goldilocks thing. You know, Papa Bear's too hot, Baby Bear's too cold, Mama Bear, oh, just right. You know, Papa Bear's bed too hard, Baby Bear's bed way too soft, Mama Bear's bed just right. So we want to find that Goldilocks approach to life where we are in the middle, not too much, not too little. We don't avoid and we don't overdo. So we find that middle path. And there, gently on the middle path, we find ourselves in harmony with life. And by being in harmony with life, this yoga destroys all sorrow. That's 
very big promise. So moving in harmony, staying centered, being in the middle, this will this, uh, assist us in moving past the sorrows. When a mind grown clear and peaceful, freed from selfish desires, absorbed in the self, big S, alone, this man is called a true man of yoga. So here we are talking about this awareness that we live in all the time. The awareness of pure consciousness. This is what Roy said. This is what Roy said we should aspire to live in this awareness of pure consciousness at all times. All times. And this is what Yogananda said, you know. Waking, dreaming, sleeping, always aware, always aware. I am one with God. God is operating through me, as me, always, always. With a mind grown clear and peaceful, freed from selfish desires, absorbed in the self, this higher consciousness, absorbed in the self alone, this man, woman, is called a person of pure yoga. So this is a good place to stop because now we can all practice remaining aware of our true nature at all times from this moment forward. We have the permission and we have kind of the marching orders from the guru. And so um, what else is there to do but just do it? So you're all now officially awake and mindful. And so we're all committed to continue in that way for the rest of our day and our afternoon and tomorrow and our life. And uh, are there any other questions? I know yesterday Ariana asked about this book um, that I was referring to, The Hidden Life of Trees. The Hidden Life of Trees, where uh, they have this kind of remarkable uh, explanation of how trees are uh, smelling and tasting and communicating, and their nervous systems work very slowly. Uh, I think he said a, th- a, a nervous, a, a nerve impulse travels through a tree at a third of an inch per second. So it's very slow. They're living in a time scale. It is so much slower than ours that it's almost impossible to conceive of. So when you're looking at this being that is 400, 500, uh, I, I had a chance to, last year to visit uh, visit my my folks out or my dad out in California, and we went to the the giant redwoods again, um, which I used to love when I was growing up. And here's trees that are 2,000 years old. Beings on the planet, 2,000 years they've been standing there, looking around, enjoying the environment, interacting. And so it's kind of interesting to see uh, that we're now learning more about how they're communicating and how they get along. And just because they're living very, very slowly doesn't mean that they're not real. It doesn't mean that they're not conscious. It doesn't mean that they're not alive. So... Anyway, so this is this is something fun if you have some extra time for reading. And uh, if there's no questions, then we'll go on and keep going with our day. Thank you for your attention and joining us. And so we appreciate all of you. And.
go forth and be joyful.